1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It is in your outline if you have one. Please uh, don't forget to bring your Bibles with you. And uh, that would be great. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 17 will go all the way through chapter 3 verse 5. I explained to the high school class this morning, the chapter breaks and the verses were added much later, uh, uh, almost a thousand years later, and they don't always kind of fall where you think they should. Um, And so this is one of those times where it's kind of broken up. But we'll start at uh, at 1 Thessalonians 2.17, reading through chapter 3, verse 5. Please listen carefully to the Word of God. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter has tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have come to your word again this morning. We find that we still need to learn a lot about the Christian life. We don't understand why hard things come into our lives and what they're supposed to be teaching us. We need to know your word and why it's so much more important than what the world says. So, Lord, once again, open our eyes and ears to truly hear and understand and apply this word to our lives. Do this for each of us this morning. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. Amen. This is one of those hard passages of Scripture. It touches on two topics that one would think don't normally go together. And yet scripture puts them together in such a way that it's presented as the norm for the Christian life. In our passage this morning, the two topics presented are joy and suffering. And I was researching and looking up how suffering is one of the causes of joy. And I came across this story Uh, as told by John Piper. I thought it was a great story. It was in his book, Desiring God. So I went and I grabbed my copy of the book and the story wasn't there. I said, ah, I have the first edition of the book. So I went and borrowed Dave Dorst's copy of the book since he has the second edition of the book. Still no story. I discovered the story is only in the third edition of the book. There was like a 10-year anniversary edition and then like a 20-year anniversary and 
you have to get the third edition of the book. And uh, so I started looking, what's the difference here? Usually editions, they just keep reprinting the same thing. And the guy updates the preface or something. But you see, in this book, Desiring God, one of the key themes of the book is finding joy in all the different aspects of the Christian life, uh, through prayer and worship and missions. However, in the second edition of the book, Piper added a chapter on suffering. And it deals with how suffering leads to joy. And then in the third edition, he expanded the chapter on suffering. So much so that the third edition is about 100 pages longer than the first edition. And it has smaller print. That's important detail for me, you know, the smaller print. The... Uh, he obviously felt something was missing as he went through these two revisions. And the first one, he added an entire chapter on uh, suffering, the first revision. And in his second rewrite, he expanded that chapter to further show how God uses suffering as a means of enabling us to glorify him and enjoy him forever. We often view joy as the antidote to suffering. But the Bible doesn't seem to be making that case. More often, the Bible seems to teach us that we won't know what true joy is. We won't know what it really means to glorify God until we have experienced suffering. So let me share with you this story that started me looking through all these editions that reflects how suffering glorifies God. Now, I have to warn you, this is an account of persecution. And it's a little rough. But it is a true story of suffering for the faith. And I think we need to know what it can be like to be a follower of Christ in other parts of the world. One of the most moving and incredible accounts of suffering being used by God is found in Sergei Kordakov's autobiography, which is entitled The Persecutor. Kordakov was commissioned by the Russian secret police to raid prayer meetings and to persecute believers with extraordinary brutality. The, but the afflictions of one believer changed his life. And he writes about it in his book. He writes first about when they raided a prayer meeting. He says, I saw Viktor Matveyev reach and grab for a young girl, Natasha Zaranova, who was trying to escape to another room. She was a beautiful young girl. What a waste to be a believer, he thought, I thought. Viktor caught her, picked her up above his head, and held her high in the air for a second. She was pleading, don't, please don't, dear God, help us. Victor threw her so hard, she hit the wall at the same height that she was thrown from, dropped to the floor, semi-conscious moaning. Victor turned and laughed and exclaimed, I'll bet the idea of God went flying out of her head. Three days later, on his next raid, Sergei was shocked to see Natasha again. He goes on, I quickly surveyed the room and saw a sight I couldn't believe. There she was, the same girl. It couldn't be, but it was. Only three nights before, 
She'd been at the other meeting and had been viciously thrown across the room. It was the first time I really got a good look at her. She was more beautiful than I remembered, a very beautiful girl with long flowing blonde hair, large blue eyes, smooth skin, one of the most naturally beautiful girls I have ever seen. I picked her up and flung her on a table face down. Two of us stripped her clothes off. My men held her down and I began to beat her again and again. My hands began to sting under the blows. Her skin started to blister. I continued to beat her until pieces of flesh came off in my hand. She moaned and fought desperately not to cry. To suppress her cry, she bit her lip until it was bitten through and blood ran down her chin. And at last she gave in and began sobbing. When I was so exhausted, I couldn't raise my arm for even one more blow, and her back was a mass of raw flesh. I pushed her off the table, and she collapsed on the floor. And then we left. But to Sergei's shock, he encountered her at yet another prayer meeting. But this time something was different. Again, he writes, There she was again. Natasha Zadanova. Several of the guys saw her too. Alex Guliev moved toward Natasha, hatred filling his face, his club raised above his head. Then something I never expected to see suddenly happened. Without warning, Victor, the man who had picked her up and thrown her against the wall during the first raid, Victor jumped between Natasha and Alex, facing Alex head on. Get out of my way, Alex shouted angrily. Victor's feet didn't move. He raised his club and said menacingly, Alex, I'm telling you, don't touch her. No one touches her. I listened in amazement. Incredibly, one of my most brutal men was protecting one of the believers. Get back, he shouted to Alex. Get back or I'll let you have it. He shielded Natasha, who was cowering on the floor. Angered, Alex shouted back, you want her for yourself, don't you? No, Victor shouted back. She has something we don't have. Nobody touches her. Nobody. And Sergei Kordikov writes, For one of the first times in my life, I was deeply moved. Natasha did have something. She had been beaten horribly. She had been warned and threatened. She had gone through unbelievable suffering. But here she was again. Even Victor had been moved and recognized it. She had something we didn't have. I wanted to run after her and ask, what is it? I wanted to talk to her, but she was gone. This heroic Christian girl who suffered so much at my hands somehow touched and troubled me very much. The Lord later opened Sergei Kordikov's heart to the glorious good news of Jesus Christ, and as he later reflected on Natasha, whom he never saw again, he wrote this, and finally to Natasha, whom I beat terribly and who is willing to be beaten a third time for her faith, I want to say, Natasha, largely because of you, my life is now changed and I am a fellow believer in Christ with you. I have a new life before me. God has forgiven me. I hope you can also. Thank you, Natasha, wherever you are. I will never, never forget you. I asked my Sunday school class this morning that I thought maybe we do them a disservice, all of our children growing up in the church, because we don't tell them 
come to Christ and somebody's going to punch you in the face. We don't say that in America. And I think sometimes we've done them a disservice. You see, God allows suffering. In fact, God ordains suffering. God uses suffering. And the Bible calls us to suffering as part and parcel of the Christian life. Some of you remember that classic Christian book, In His Steps, written by Charles Sheldon. The point of the book is that we're to walk in his steps, that we're to do what Jesus did. And it comes from a verse in 1 Peter that ends with, in his steps. And so he tried to do that, do what Jesus did, and he wrote a book about his experience and how that changed his life. But what most people don't remember is that the context of that verse is suffering. 1 Peter 2.21 is that verse. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. All the letters of the Apostle Peter, both of them, were written to a suffering, persecuted church. He never blames them for suffering. He never tells them they're suffering because of their sin. He never tells them to try and avoid suffering. He never tells them that real Christians are healthy and wealthy and have no hardship in their life. And telling the church in first century Rome to have your best life now would have been considered utterly ludicrous. So what does he tell them? First Peter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He mentioned suffering in virtually every chapter of his letters. In chapter 4 he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He's telling them trials and suffering, affliction is normal. It's not strange. He says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And that's what today's passage is about. It sort of looks like a bridge between the last important section of Thessalonians and the next important section of Thessalonians. But it's not. It's about suffering and rejoicing and trusting God. And Paul starts by telling us about his love. Chapter 2, verse 17. Telling us about his love. That should be the first blank in your outline. says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Paul expresses his concern that the missionary's premature departure from Thessalonica, the length of the absence, his own failure to return, shouldn't be misinterpreted 
as evidence of a lack of pastoral concern. That's what the people are saying about him. Paul got run out of town. He hasn't come back. You haven't heard from him. Obviously, he doesn't care about you. He doesn't love you. And therefore, you probably shouldn't listen to anything he says. But he wants them to know the missionaries left Thessalonica against their will in the face of persecution. If you remember from Acts 17, a mob came to get him and they sort of snuck him away and snuck him out of town in the middle of the night. And he uses this phrase, torn away. He says, we were torn away from you, brothers. Now, that, that, that's one word, uh, torn away, in the Greek. And uh, it's aporphanizo. And the middle of that word is the word orphan. And it literally means to be orphaned. He says, we were orphaned from you. And this is the only place that word is used in the New Testament. Now, he's already in this chapter called himself, said he's like a mother to you. He said he's like a father to you. He's called them brothers. But now he pictures himself as their orphaned child. But this word has actually a wider sense of, uh, than children being deprived of parents. It also applies to parents being deprived of children. And the emphasis is on an unnatural separation, forceful and painful. To Paul, it's, though his, it's as though his family is being torn away from him. And it suggests that he's really deeply distressed over their separation. He wants them to know that his absence doesn't reflect a lack of concern. He says, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. Contrary to what the Thessalonians might think, they had repeatedly tried to get back to Thessalonica. And just to be sure, he identifies himself. He says, I, Paul. And it reveals that Paul is the author of this letter, and he feels the need to defend himself with respect to this absence. It's very unusual that Paul inserts his name in the middle of the letter. He only does that a few times. It's very rare. His name's always at the beginning or the end. It's not often in the middle. And I think he just wishes to emphasize in another way that it's really him who feels this way. It's really Paul who wants to be with them. And he explains his inability to come back to him. He says, but Satan hindered us. Now, it's not known. He doesn't give it any explanation. It's not known what means Satan used to prevent a reunion. But we know that Satan would do anything in his power to prevent Paul from building up a church that he was working, uh, that Satan's working so hard to lead astray. And Paul's reason for wanting to return is to provide additional spiritual help for these new believers. If you remember when he went to Thessalonica, started this church, he was only there for three weeks. You know, you can't get a whole lot done in three weeks. That's not enough time to get through to Westminster Confession of Faith. You know, they still need to know a lot of stuff. And I think that desire to come back and teach them and build them up by itself is clearly the will of God in almost any situation. And as such, any hindrances become opposition to the will of God. And regardless who's involved on the human level, the ultimate leader of this kind of opposition is Satan. As John Calvin wrote, 
Whenever the ungodly causes trouble, they are fighting under the banner of Satan and are his instruments for harassing us. God permitted this to happen, but he's no more responsible for it than he is for any sin which his people commit and which he permits. And this is so important to Paul that he didn't try to return just once, once, but he says again and again he wanted to get back to Thessalonica, but he's not able to, so he does the next best thing. He sends them his helper. He sends them his helper. We're going to jump to chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to pick up the last two verses of chapter 2 at the end. He sends him his helper. He says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. The sending of Timothy is due to Paul's inability to endure any longer his separation from the Thessalonians and not knowing how they're doing. And it's a sacrificial act. It re reflects a deep pastoral love for these people because he says that, uh, he says we here, it's Paul and Silas, left behind at Athens alone. We really needed Timothy. Timothy is like Paul's right-hand man. It's his protege. And he sends his protege, Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel. It's a remarkable title. Paul seems to be highlighting Timothy's credentials to offset any negative sentiment there might be on the Thessalonians at Paul sending his younger associate rather than coming himself. And his motive for sending Timothy is to strengthen the persecuted church there. He says that no one be moved by these afflictions. He'll say later in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Much of the ministry of the apostles is devoted to grounding young believers in the faith, a ministry as necessary today as it was then in the first century. And Timothy's mission is to be a help to the Thessalonian Christians. He's to establish them, which means to make them firm and solid in the faith. He was sent to exhort them by providing what they needed to fight the good fight of faith, both individually and corporately as a church. The word translated exhort is parakaleo. It's the same word, the same term that Jesus uses to describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit in John 14. And he's saying, I am sending him to you just as Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to us. It literally means one called alongside to help. And the need for constant strengthening and support is an integral part of the church. And I think there's a tendency, particularly in America, to sort of portray the, the ideal Christian as a pioneer, you know, one who stands alone with no need of help. And that's totally wrong. The reality is that each and every one of us needs support. And the recognition of that need is the beginning of trust. And the acceptance of our own weakness is the beginning of faith. One of the great discoveries in my Christian life has been that I am 
always in need of the church and need the people in the church for strengthening and encouragement, and I always will. And to know and accept that about each other is the basis for growing relationships in Christ. And not only do they need to be established and strengthened in the faith, not only do they need to be exhorted and encouraged in ministry, they need to be reminded of his teaching. Verses uh, 3 and 4, his teaching. He says, For you yourselves know that we are destined for this, for when we were there with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Another purpose of Timothy's visit is that they wouldn't lose their uh, spiritual balance, their spiritual stability as a result of these afflictions, the suffering they're experiencing. And Paul adds his own stabilizing reminder that trials aren't necessarily a sign of God's disfavor, but they're part of every Christian's legacy. When trouble comes, Christians often react by doubting that they are where God wants them to be. They often think they've done something wrong and that God must be unhappy with them. Even some mature Christians react this way. Paul wrote to Timothy years later. Paul the Apostle to Timothy, his protege, he pastored uh, several churches. Timothy was a godly guy, and Paul asked to write him, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul's worried that the Thessalonians' sufferings might lead him astray, and perhaps the best way to protect people from being upset by tribulation is to remind them it's a necessary part of our calling as Christians. He wants them to know that storms often come to believers to make them able to stand firm, not to blow them away. And apparently, the Thessalonians had been taken aback by this unrelenting persecution, and circumstances had turned out just as Paul has said. And this reminder of his teaching would help to calm their fears. This idea, he says, of being destined to suffer. That's a hard pill to swallow. And many preachers today are all too prone to present the gospel as a way out of suffering, as an antidote to pain. It's not so in the New Testament. Afflictions are a necessary part of our growth. And they come by divine appointment. Jesus is the good shepherd who walks with us through the valley of darkness. His cross becomes the theme of Christian discipleship. And that's why our support for one another is so crucial. It's not like Paul didn't need that. He did. In a very personal way, he shares with them his fear. Look at verse 5, his fear. He says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Satan is the tempter. He tempted Jesus in Matthew 4. Paul tells us he tempts Christians in 1 Corinthians 7. And here we see some of the basic humanity of Paul as he shares his fear for this young church that our labor would be in vain. If Satan succeeded in tempting the Thessalonians to abandon their faith, then Paul's missionary work would have been fruitless. Remember, this is one of Paul's earliest letters to the churches. It's one of the first letters that he wrote. And he's to fight this battle and face this fear many more times in his life. And he would come to know that the power of the Holy Spirit was more than enough 
to keep him from giving in to this fear. So much so that years later, in one of his last letters, he would be able to write in Romans 5, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of glory in, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. And see that in the four spiritual laws. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You need endurance, character, and hope in your life? I know how you can get it. Comes through suffering. Remember that when you pray for those things. Because of the work of the Holy Spirit, because of Paul's trust in the promises of God, Paul lets him know that not only are they his family, they are his blessing. They are his blessing. Look at the end of chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. He says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. The word here for Jesus' coming is parousia. And it's talking about the coming of Christ. It's the earliest reference in all Christian writing to the second coming of Christ. It's not the earliest if you go through your Bible in order, but this was written almost before anything else. Some debate whether Galatians might have been written first. That's the earliest reference we have to the second coming of Christ. And presenting his converts to Jesus at the second coming of Christ is an integral part of Paul's Christian hope. And in fact, he asks, what would be the greatest blessing he could possibly receive at the judgment seat of Christ? They were. They were everything that was worth anything to Paul. They were his hope. Their development was what he, he lived for as a parent lives to see his children grow to maturity. He says they were his joy. They filled his life with delight as he thought about what they used to be and what they had become and what they would be by the grace of God. They were his crown. The word is Stephanos. We get the name Stephen and Stephanie from that. And they themselves are the symbol of God's blessing on his life and ministry. And they were his glory and joy. And not only his, but the glory and joy of his companions in the ministry. And Paul is saying, in essence, when life is over and we stand in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming, you Thessalonians will be our source of glory and joy. You mean that much to us. And I read that and I thought, what will that be like for us? I mean, to be honest, there's no way we can know for sure this side of heaven. Perhaps this story will shed a little light on what that day might look like. 
It starts with the story of Oscar Schindler. Oscar Schindler had a share of less than noteworthy characteristics. He was a womanizer and a heavy drinker. He bribed officials and was a member of the German Nazi party. But buried in the dark of his heart was a diamond of compassion for the condemned Jews of Krakow, Poland. The ones Hitler sought to kill, Schindler tried to save. He couldn't save them all, but he could save some, and so he did what he could. And he began a factory, and what he started as a factory for profit became a haven for 1,100 fortunate souls whose names found their way onto his list, Schindler's List. And if you saw the movie by that same name, it's not an easy movie to watch. But if you saw that movie, you'll remember how the story ends. With the defeat of the Nazis came the reversal of roles. And now Schindler would be hunted. And the prisoners would be free. And Oscar Schindler is preparing to slip away into the night. And as he leaves the factory and walks to his car, his factory workers line both sides of the road. And they've come to thank the man who saved them. One of the Jews presents Schindler with a letter signed by each person documenting his deed. And he's given a ring that was formed out of the gold extracted from a worker's tooth. And on that ring is carved a verse from the Talmud, the wisdom writings of the Jewish people. It says, he who saves a single life saves the world entire. And in that moment, in the brisk air of that Polish night, Schindler is surrounded by the liberated, row after row of faces, husbands with wives, parents with children. They know what Schindler did for them, and they'll never forget. What thoughts raced through Oscar Schindler's mind in that moment? What emotions surfaced when a person finds himself face to face with lives he's changed? The Bible says someday you'll find out. I mean, Schindler saw the faces of the delivered. You will, too. He heard the gratitude of the redeemed. You'll hear the same. He stood in a community of rescued souls, and the same is reserved for you. How will this occur? It will occur when Christ comes. The promise of 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, isn't limited to the Apostle Paul. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are glory and joy. And those verses uh, conjure up an image akin to this one of Schindler and the survivors. An encounter between the freed and those who led them to freedom. A moment in which those saved can meet the one who led them to salvation. In this case, Paul will meet with the Thessalonians. He'll search the sea of faces for his friends. They'll find him and he will find them. And in the presence of Christ, they'll enjoy an eternal reunion. And try to imagine doing the same thing. Think about the day Christ comes. And at the end of that day, there you are in the great circle of the redeemed. Your body's been made new, amen? No more pain, no more suffering. Your mind has been made new. What you once understood in part, you now understand clearly. You feel no fear, no danger, no sorrow. And though you're just one of a massive throng of people, it's as if you and Jesus are all alone. 
and he asked you a question, and I'm speculating now. The Bible doesn't say this. But I wonder if Jesus might say something like this to you. I'm so proud that you let me use you. And because of you, others are here today. Would you like to meet them? Chances are you'd be surprised at such a statement. I mean, it's one thing for the Apostle Paul, you know, to hear such words. He was an apostle, you know, or maybe a missionary or famous evangelist, you know, like Billy Graham. But us? And at this point, Jesus might, again, this is speculation, but Jesus might turn to the crowd and invite them with his hand on your shoulder. He says, do we have any here that were influenced by this child of mine? And one by one, they step out of the crowd. And the first is your neighbor, sort of a crusty old sort who lived next door. And to be frank, you didn't expect to see him here. But he explains, you never knew I was watching, but I was. And because of you, I'm here. And then comes a cluster of people, a half dozen or so. One speaks for the others and said, you probably don't remember us. You helped out with the youth program when we were kids. You didn't open your mouth much, but you opened your home. We became Christians in your basement. And the line continues, and a coworker noticed how you controlled your temper, and a receptionist remarked how you greeted her each morning. And someone you don't even know reminds you of the time that you saw her in the hospital. You came to visit a friend in the next bed, and on the way out you stopped and spoke a word of hope with this stranger who looked lonely. And then you're amazed by people from other countries. After all, you never went to Asia or Africa or Latin America. But look, Cambodians, Nigerians, Colombians, how'd you influence them? Christ reminds you of the missionaries who came. And your friend said you had a soft spot for them and you always gave money. I can't go, but I can send, you'd say. And now you understand you didn't have a soft spot. You had the Spirit of God. And because you were obedient to the Spirit, Utan from Cambodia wants to say thanks. And so does Kinsley from Nigeria and Maria who lived in Colombia. And it's not long before you and your Savior are encircled by this delightful collection of souls that you've touched. Some you know, most you don't. But for each, you feel the same. You feel what Paul felt for the Thessalonians. You now understand what he meant when he said, you are my glory and joy. But Jesus isn't finished. He loves to save, save the best for last. And I can't help but imagine him doing the same in heaven. You've seen the neighbors, the co-workers, the people you hardly knew, the folks from other countries that you never knew, but there's one more group. And Jesus parts the crowd, so you'll see them. And it's your family. And your spouse is the first one to embrace you. And there were times you wondered if either of you were going to make it. And now you hear these words whispered in your ear. Thanks for not giving up on me. And then your parents. And they're no longer frail like the last time you saw them. But they're robust and renewed. And they say, we're so proud of you. And then your children. Children from whom, for whom you cared and over whom you prayed. And they thank you over and over and over again. They thank you. And they know how hard it was and how hard you tried. And they thank you. And then there's some faces you don't recognize. And you have to be told these are the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren and the great-great-great-grandchildren. 
the descendants you never saw until today, and they, like the others, will thank you for an inherited legacy of faith. Will such a moment occur? I don't know. If it does, you can be certain of two things. First, in its grandeur and glory, it will outstrip any description that these words can carry. 1 Corinthians 2 says, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And second, if such a reunion does occur, you can be certain you won't regret any sacrifice you made for the kingdom. The hours of service for Christ, you won't regret them. The money you gave, you'd give it a thousand times over. The times you helped the poor and loved the lost, you'd do it again. Oscar Schindler would have. Earlier, we wondered about his final thoughts. We wondered how he felt surrounded by the people he saved. We don't know for sure, but his last appearance in the movie gives us a pretty good idea, I think. There, in the presence of the survivor, he accepts the letter from the people that they all signed, and he tucks it away in his coat, and he accepts the ring with a verse from the Talmud, and he puts it on, and he looks from face to face, and then for the first time, he shows some emotion, and he leans towards Isaac Stern who's the foreman of the factory, and he says something in a voice so low that Stern asks him to repeat it, and he says, and he kind of leans forward and says, I could have done more. He gestures to a car that he's about to get into to try to leave, and he says, that would have released 10 prisoners. And the gold pin on his lapel, he said, I could have used that to bribe an official to release two prisoners. And in that moment, Schindler's life is reduced to one value. Profit is forgotten. The factory doesn't matter. All the tears and all the tragedy of this long nightmare are distilled into one truth. People. What counts is people. And I think you'll feel the same. You won't feel the regrets. Heaven knows no regret. Our God is too kind to let us face all the opportunities that we missed. But he's happy to let us see the ones that we seized. And in a moment when you see the people that God lets you love, I dare say you would do it all again in a heartbeat. You change the diapers and fix the cars and write the checks and prepare the lessons and pray the prayers and teach the word and tell others about Jesus. One look into the faces of the ones you love, and you do it all again. And the Bible tells us, at that day, your joy will be full, and your suffering will be forgotten. Think about that. You need to pray.